you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark in your New Testament, page 708 in the Church Bibles, chapter 3 of Mark. And in a moment, we're going to begin reading in verse 7. Most of you know we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse, and so here we are this morning in verse 7. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumiah, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning, and and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the immense and amazing privilege that we have to be in your presence now and in the company of your people on this Lord's Day. We are ready to hear from you, Father, as your word is preached We are under the firm conviction that when your word is truly preached, then your voice is truly heard, and that's what we need, and and that alone is what we seek. And of course, God, you're well aware of our need, of my need, and so we look to you now, as Jesus said, we affirm that apart from him, we can do nothing. And so in, in Christ's name, we ask for Christ's power. Amen. Well, if your Bible's open, you'll see there in verse 16 of chapter 3, the gentlemen who are listed, every one of them, as you read the gospel record, were deeply flawed. Every one of them very fallible, very ordinary men. In the gospel record, they are not presented to us as um, heroes. At times, they are a jumble of contradictions and cowardly in the moments when courage was called for, especially at the end. And so if we're going to be honest, this is what it means to be a sinful human being, isn't it? This is us as we are even in Christ. And therefore, Jesus has to work, and this isn't flattering, but it is true, Jesus has to work with extremely flawed human beings who oftentimes 
do not think they are extremely flawed human beings, beginning with myself, but Jesus knows we are deeply flawed human beings because that is the only sort there is. And the one big lesson I hope we will come to see as we work through these verses, and I hope we find great encouragement from these verses, encouragement if we think um, we have nothing to offer Jesus, and maybe even like a mild rebuke is, is if we don't want to offer anything to Jesus. Here's the thing. God raises ordinary people to amazing and inexplicable, unexplainable usefulness. That's the principle here. God raises ordinary people to amazing, inexplicable, unexplainable, on the human level, usefulness. Now, we know, hope we know, that you know, popular Christianity, if you would, establishment Christianity, makes no real allowance for this. So, you know, it's only if you're a real go-getter, and you're smart, and you're beautiful, and you're handsome, and your kids are like, you know, shiny golden nuggets, and you have all your ducks in a row, and, you know, maybe you've lost a few pounds, and maybe you've got a great story to say, well, I was really down here, and Jesus brought me all the way up here to go along, you know, with that super personality, and those are the real pickers, and those are the group, those are the one whom God's going to, you know, get some things done with. That's the ones he's going to pick. But if you're going to be honest and you read the Gospels, you do not get that in the Gospels. Okay, so what do we get in the Gospels? Well, when you read the Gospel record, this is what you see. You, You see that God uses and raises up ordinary people, deeply flawed, to amazing, if you would, and unexplainable Usefulness. Now, let's back that up, and I want you to think with me. Who would have ever guessed that this group here listed would have turned the, the whole world upside down for Jesus? Who among us would have trusted these men? And we know a lot about them. Who would have trusted these men to a 2,000-year mission strategy? Because there is no plan B that we're given here. These guys are going to start the whole thing off. So we might try to create a plan B, but there really is no plan B. And as far as the world of that day was concerned, these 12 guys didn't even exist. I mean, who were they? As far as the religious establishment, the Pharisees of that day, these guys didn't even matter. So you got, a, you got fish guys, if you would. You got a sin-filled tax collector. You got a terrorist in Simon the Zealot. And, and you, you might have some guys with some bad temperament issues. And they're on the team. Good luck with that. And yet, and here's the thing, in the purposes of God and in the calling of Jesus Christ, all of us here are in debt. If we're Christian, all of us here are in debt to these guys. We we stand in their succession. Every one of us in Christ, we can trace our salvation back to these Ordinary men. And you need to think through this. If they don't go out and preach and expand the gospel past Capernaum, past Galilee, on the human level, we're not here. We're at home eating donuts, watching hurricane coverage. Now, have you ever really honestly thought of that? So we cling to their message, all because Jesus called them to himself on the side of a mountain. It wasn't, it was just them. He said they were apostles. A unique and unrepeatable group, which we'll talk about in a moment. And he sent them out to do what? What does your Bible say, verse 14? To preach. To preach. Now, there's a Greek word there, caruso, and it's a very technical word. 
and it's used in the New Testament to a specific task only for a few. Okay, so this is the task. To, to herald, to open air, preach the good news that God has made a way for humanity to be forgiven and to be reconciled to God. So this is not like gossiping the gospel. You and I on the street corner somewhere, maybe in the pub, talking to people about Jesus. This is this like this. Open air. Hear ye, hear ye. Good news. Jesus has died for your sins and he's now alive and he's reigning over all things. And the final enemy, death, is going to meet its death. So come to your senses. You're going the wrong way. Jesus is the only way, the better way. God has done for you what you could never do for yourself. So as we work through these verses, we need to keep this in mind. Two scenes here. A scene by the lake and a scene on the side of a mountain. Three phrases. You'll see them in the verses there. Verse 7, withdrew or withdraw. Verse 13, went up. Jesus went up to the mountain. And verse 14, he sent them out. Okay, with, withdrew or withdraw. So if your Bible is open, you can see in verse 6 that the life of Jesus Christ was in peril. Well, what did he do? Well, he was preaching the gospel and doing good deeds. That rascal, right? And so there's two groups there that want him dead and they're planning for his death. We said last time that in the case of the Pharisees and in the case of organized, externalized religion ever since, they had a wrong view of God and because they had a wrong view of God, they had an inadequate view of sin. And because they had a wrong view of God leading to an inadequate view of sin, they didn't understand themselves and they didn't understand the depth of their depravity before God, which means one, they didn't understand grace. Two, they didn't understand their need of grace. Three, they didn't believe in the gospel that Jesus was preaching of grace. And they think, and we've been saying this lately in different ways, they think that God will reward them only if they're doing the do's, their do's, and their don'ts. And the more do's that they do, and the more don'ts that they don't, God would be inclined. He'd have to reward them and give them favor with him. But, and here's the thing, the God of the Old Testament, which of course is the God of the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament said something like this, all the righteous things that we would do, all our attempts at self-righteousness are just like what? Just like filthy rags. It's just like the kind of stuff you, you throw out at the end of the day, the kind of stuff that I hide in my garage so my wife won't throw it out. And loved ones, God says this. Now think with me. God does not say all your visible sins are like filthy rags. He doesn't say that. What does he say through the prophet? All your visible goodness is like filthy rags. The good things we do Okay, so why would he say that? Well, this is, this is why. Don't ever think your deeds will bring you any closer to God than what Christ has achieved for you by, your, by his suffering and death on the cross. So to do works to either establish a relationship with God or as a means to maintain a relationship with God. Dead works. Unacceptable. 
The only righteousness that God accepts comes through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. I've been wanting to read this to you. I read it in the first service. It was a little dry. I'm going to try to explain it to you, which might be even drier. Luther said this. There's two ways to think about Christianity. There's a theology of the cross and the theology of glory. The theology of glory, says Luther, says we don't understand how deceptive we are so that we would use our good works and we would use our deeds to either corner God to having to do something for us or to build us up pridefully for all the wrong reasons or to get, if you would, our name out there, theology of glory versus theology of the cross that says, you wretched sinner, there is no way on your best day, no matter how hard you're working for God, there's no way on your best day that you can be right with God and maintain that relationship other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. And of course, in the heart of the Pharisees, they could not stand this. And this is what they did. They replaced God's word, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, with their high holy, we thank God that we're not like other men. That was the phrase that marked them out. I thank God that I'm not, I'm not like other men. I thank God that I'm a doer and I'm a donor, right? And so I'm so glad that I'm not like that guy or girl, that wretched, you know, sinner, now, think with me. It takes that much intellect to be able to see the flaws in every human being. You understand, right? It doesn't take this high holy mind to say they're flawed. So what Jesus does is he explodes all their mythology, which causes the Pharisees to have to think through levels of their depravity that they were not accustomed to. And what does that do? Verse 6, chapter 3. It drives them to rage as Jesus preaches and as Jesus does his good deeds. So they react with, you know, who cares about what that guy's saying? No, they don't react with that. They don't say, you know what? Let's try to convert him. Let's have a sit down and talk to him and be really nice. And let's see if we can win him to our side. But what do they say? Verse 6. We want him dead. And the irony here is that the people who are very interested in keeping all the rules, they're willing to break the rule, commandment number six, murder, to get rid of Jesus Christ. Now, they should have known this. All that God was going to do in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, it was predicted again and again in the Old Testament. Remember John 3, Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's, he's a leading teacher. And he's having this Q&A with Jesus, and Jesus is like, you know, Nicodemus, you should know this born-again stuff. It was predicted in the Old Testament. You should know all this, but however, what's the old saying? There's none so blind that will not see. And the Pharisees refused to see. And they became enemies of God. Now, I want you to think with me. You're the Son of God. You're filled with power unknown. And you're on the earth... And your life is threatened. What would you do? Right? Good question. You're the son of God. You're walking the earth. Power unknown. Life is threatened. What do you do? Verse 7. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Now, you might say on one level, well, that's kind of a reach because we're not told that Jesus knew his life was being threatened. And that is true. But this is what we do know. We do know that Jesus was, knew what was in the heart of men. Jesus understood his mission. He understands the times. He, he has already been confronted again and again in these opening chapters by these Pharisees. And the hostility is real and the hostility is growing And besides, if you think about it, people have been after Jesus ever since he was born. From a little child, people wanted Jesus dead. So the progression here makes great sense. And if you read John's gospel, and if you read Luke's gospel, you'll find that whenever this kind of life-threatening behavior came to Christ, a lot of times Christ stood down. He walked away. He, He got out of there. When trouble comes. Why? Because his timetable was not their timetable. His father said, Son, there's a cross to go to. You got to get to the cross. And so that's why Jesus would stand down. He withdrew. However, what happens? You see it there. He thought there would be maybe a bit of relief. Not so. Verse 7b the crowds from Galilee begin to follow him. Now, it's important that word following is not following like a converted or interested in conversion. It's more like following because they're really fascinated with all the amazing things that Jesus does. Remember back in chapter 1, Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum, he preaches the gospel. You don't read any sign of anybody being converted. There's a little demon activity. That goes over. Jesus fixed that. He goes to the town. He does all kinds of good deeds. He says all kinds of good things. But the town basically had no need or no real need for Jesus. In fact, later on in another gospel, Capernaum, Jesus said, is going to be judged far more stricter than other places. Why? Well, because Capernaum was the ministry hub of Jesus, and Jesus did a whole lot of good there, and he did a whole lot of preaching there, but not a whole lot of people were believing there. So they were fascinated by Jesus. They liked the deeds, but they're unchanged by Jesus and his words. Healing, Great, casting out demons, pretty exciting, but not much more. They, verse 8, they heard what he was doing. It's, it's a cute little thing. The Greek word is actually to make. I was thinking about parents and babies. Anyway, <laughs> to make, you know, like when you have to go potty, we used to say that. Are you, have you made yet, right? Well, sorry. <laughs> In other words, it's physical. It's all physical. It's not spiritual. It's like we just like watching this guy do his stuff. Fascination. That was the expectation of the crowds. And it's set in the context of opposition from religious leaders, causing Jesus to withdraw. He tries to withdraw, not so fast. The crowds follow him. They're so large. Verse 9, Jesus says, let's get a boat ready. I don't want to be crushed by the crowds. Verse 10, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. So you get this great sense of, of crowds crushing in, they're in need. If I could just touch him, everything would be well. Right? This is very human. Someone capable is on the scene. There's no fee for his service. He's having tremendous success. The crowds want relief from their pain, physical, and their suffering, physical. And they're not really thinking about their souls. Just, just make the pain go away. And of course, we understand this. And Jesus here is glad to do this. 
But you still need to say, in light of eternity, this was a secondary importance. And we're going to see this in a minute. But we still, we, we have to admit that so oftentimes we neglect the care of our souls to the care of our bodies. Our largest area of prayer requests and our prayer emails are typically physical and they're temp- typically temporal. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But in light of eternity, we probably need to think more often of the spiritual. Verse 11, Mark gives a description of some of the people in the crowd. And some of the people in the crowd are outside of themselves. Their mindset was impinged by a will not their own. Their, their mouths open, an alias voice, alien voice comes out of it, possessed, obsessed. And you'll notice there that the cries of these possessed people were immediately silenced by Jesus. Verse 11, you're the son of God. Verse 12, zip it, right? He gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. So you, you might say, well, Jesus, don't you want people to know who you were? Why would you tell them not to say who you were? It's free press. You are the Son of God, Jesus. But Jesus silences them. So we need to ask the question, why does Jesus do this? Because he does this often. And and here is my answer. If people do not understand what it truly means that Jesus is the Son of God and what the Son of God came to do, that he came to bear sin. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to redeem us from all wickedness. If people don't understand at the core, that's who the Son of God is, what they're going to do is they're going to pour in every other understanding about Jesus and it's whatever they choose. So you hear people say, well, this is what Jesus means to me or I'd like to think of Jesus this way or in my view, Jesus is. And what happens is they create a Jesus of their imagination and the Jesus of imagination is not necessarily the Jesus of the Gospels. So Jesus says, silence. He add to that, the demonic cries were antagonistic cries, vindictive. They weren't cries of faith. They wanted to control Jesus by, by naming Jesus as a Middle Eastern thing. Keep him at bay. I know your name, so I have some sense of authority over you. And then finally, the fullness of the identity of Jesus Christ as the sin bearer, That really wasn't made known. It hadn't reached its apex. In fact, if you read in uh, Mark 15, you have this exact same phrase, the Son of God said by a centurion, a Roman centurion, and no one silences him. No one says, zip it. Because at that point, the, the apex of who Jesus is, the sin bearer on the cross, was made known. At this point, these unclean spirits are of no help at all. Okay. That's point number one, withdraw. Number two, went up. So Jesus withdraws from the religious opposition. He is confronted with the crowds, more fascination than conversion. Jesus serves them well because he's filled with compassion. He drives out the evil spirits and their confrontation with the Son of God. And then we move from the lakeside to the mountainside. Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. Now, this is what we need to understand. We did this a little bit in the beginning. Okay, this is the start of something massive. I mean, on this day, millions and millions and millions of people are declaring Jesus Christ as Lord. They're they're doing what we're doing now. They're praising Christ. They're hearing Christ's priest. They're praying to Christ. 
And if you trace what's happening today, if you trace it back to its origin, this mountain scene is one of the main stopping points. Because again, if they don't go out on the human level, we might have never heard the gospel. Now that's God's way. God usually doesn't go with a whole lot of fanfare and big press releases. Think about the birth of Jesus. There wasn't great pomp and circumstance. There was no huge palace. Everything didn't line up perfectly straight. There was a whole lot of messy things. It wasn't pretty. Plenty of room for gossip, right? Oh yeah, the young girl was a virgin and she gave birth to a baby. Okay, yeah, right? And yes, you had angels singing, you know, glory to God in the highest peace on earth uh, to men. But who were they singing to? They were singing to shepherds. What were shepherds? They were the low street people, disreputable members of society, and their testimony couldn't even hold up in a court of law at that time. And there in a manger, what do we say? In the manger is, is God incarnate in the flesh. And on the human level, you'd go, really? And now we're on a mountainside. This young man, Jesus, calls together a few ordinary men, and, and we say, you know, really? Backwater place, Middle East, ordinary guys filled with flaws, a lot of fears, a lot of sin. And you're going to use this plan with those guys to change the world. And they're going to actually preach, right? Because that's their designation. They're going to preach to change the world. That's how you change the world? Really? I don't know if you'll like this story, but I, I... I came across it and I thought maybe some of you would like it. It's true. So there are two golfers and they're friends and, and they're talking about each other's life and, and they're new friends. And so the one golfer says, uh, yeah, I used to uh, deal in large frame computers back in the day. And I built a couple of businesses and sold them both and made a lot of money. And the, the other golfer says, well, how did you do that? And he said, well, the building of the business or the selling of the business? And the golfer's like, selling of the business. And so he told him, well... You go and you make your presentation in front of investors and the investors listen and then they, they buy or don't buy. And he told his friend, and this is a true story, that on one occasion he was making his presentation with a few other people in the same you know, line of work in a hotel in New York City. And some of the presentations were extremely complicated, you know, lots of bells and whistles. His was just real low level. He went into the room and said, I buy these pieces for X and I try to sell them for Y and my hope is... I want, to sell, uh, I want to make a lot, a lot of money. And that was basically his presentation. So he went on to say that he finished his presentation, went back into his hotel room, and he got a call. And the person on the phone said, listen, I, I like your presentation. The other ones I didn't really understand. Yours are under, I understood. Would you be willing to meet with me in the lobby? Because tomorrow morning I got to do the same thing that you're gonna, you just did and talk to these investors. So the man said, sure, I'll, I'll go down there and... and the young man told the golfer, he said, this is what I'm planning to do at this IPO. And the golfer said that he listened to the person and he frankly felt really, really sorry for him. Because he said the person's idea had no chance of success. In fact, he said their goodbyes and he said, quote, there's a lot of good ideas that are going nowhere at all. So, so don't be you know, disappointed if tomorrow goes horrible. But... As the story goes, no doubt today, the, this golfer wishes he would have listened just a little more carefully to Bill Gates 
on that afternoon. Because Bill Gates is the person who asked the golfer advice about his presentation. And so this Bill Gates, awkward young man, strange ideas, no prospect at all, at least in the mind of the golfer, he changed the world. And I imagine if we came on that scene and we were kind of like onlookers and we saw these guys, we might have said, I'll give it two years. And by the way, there's a whole lot of other religious people that, that are well-heeled and look a lot more moral than these guys and they look like they have a lot more capability than these guys. But Jesus knows all things. And Jesus does everything well. And out of the group which followed him, verse 13, he chooses them. He called to him those he wanted. Just briefly, there's no self-calling in ministry, right? You don't call yourself uh, into public ministry, pulpit ministry, pastoral ministry. You, You don't call yourself into the preaching ministry. It's the call of God, John's gospel. Jesus said to the 12, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. How did the 12 do? (laughs) How did they do? This is the initiative taking Jesus Christ. He calls whom he wants, and when he calls, they come. When Jesus calls, they come. They will come to him. When Jesus calls you, you will come. You will come to him. And of course, verse 14, they came to him and he designated them as apostles, literally sent ones. So they were charged to go out. But first, you see there, he called them to be what? To be with him. Now, this is so basic. It's companionship. This is intimacy. Jesus was human fully. It's not good for men to be alone. Jesus knows this. Jesus does not isolate himself. Jesus calls them to be with him so they might learn from him in a setting of companionship. Now, this is good, right? This is side-by-side stuff. This is much more than, you know, a classroom. This is learning from Jesus. Now, listen carefully. Slowly, moment by moment, Tied, if you would, to the hip of Jesus. You'll forgive me, you might say that this is Jesus' internship program with these disciples. How did they do? Well, let's look at our Bible because the success of this little enterprise is made known in a few places. One place is Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The apostles are preaching. They're doing deeds in the name of Christ. And listen to what Luke records for us. When the crowds realized that they, the apostles, were unschooled, ignorant men, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Time, intimacy, slowly. It was the intimacy of their companionship which provided the foundation of their proclamation of Jesus. It's, it's right? Simple, right? You're going to spend time with the Savior of the world. And it's going to rub off on you. 
intimate time. You're going to add strength to power, if you would. And that serves as the basis so that when they go out, they can say on the human level, I've seen him, I've touched him, I've, I've listened to him, I've learned him, he's loved me. He is otherworldly. That rubs off on the apostles. An extent by principle, it rubs off on us. People listen to us, they watch us, they see how we plan for future and plan for life, and it becomes, hopefully, otherworldly. And the people say yes, and they take note that we have been with Jesus. There's a hymn that we used to sing in our old church when I was a kid, I have met the master, won't you come and meet him too? That's what was happening here. The apostles called by Jesus, met with Jesus, and they're telling everybody, I've met the master, won't you come and meet him too? That's what followers of Christ, at its root, this is what we do. We have met Christ, we would like you to meet him too. Jesus called me and I came to him, he's my savior, and he's my king, and he's my friend, and I spend time with him, and I worship him, and I open my Bible and listen to his voice through the word. I want to know him, and I want you to know him too. And that principle there for the apostles is, again, by principle for every Christian. Every Christian. Final point, Jesus withdrew out of fear for his life, but the crowds followed him. He went up to the mountain to send out, final point, to send out these men to preach, apostles, designating them to be apostles, a unique and unrepeatable group. Why are they unique and unrepeatable? Why do we not have any more apostles anymore? Because when they were preaching Christ, they were actually providing for us the New Testament as we have it for the church. Nobody is doing that today. There's no new news from God. The scripture is complete. The canon is closed. Nothing to be added to God's word. If someone says they are adding to God's word, uh, they are a heretic. Listen to your Bible. This is Jesus to the disciples. John 15, verse 15. I have called you friends. Okay, Jesus, why did you call the disciples friends? You ready? For everything that I learned from my father... I have made known to you. This is simple. This is good sense. What do good friends do? Good friends don't keep anything from each other. They don't hold back any information. That's how you lose friends. You tell 10 and not tell the two. Everything Jesus learned from the Father that we needed to know, he gave to the apostles and they in turn preached it to the world. And we have what they preached recorded for us in the New Testament. And of course, they have authority over demons, just exercising the kingly rule of Christ as a sign that these apostles really were sent by Christ because they have his authority, a unique and unrepeatable group. But the pattern for us is pretty simple, isn't it? Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with his people who spend time with Jesus. That's the church. I found this little quote You shall never lead souls heavenward unless we are climbing ourselves. You need not be very high, but you must be climbing. You must be climbing. Are you climbing? Are you climbing? Three chapters so far in Mark. What do we know? Jesus preached the gospel. 
Jesus said, if you follow me, you'll preach the gospel. He sends out 12. You guys are going to preach the gospel. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Preach, preach, preach with some good deeds to boost them. That's the pattern. And it all begins with Jesus Christ. I think I'm going to stop there. I got a corny story that I read to the first service and I'm not going to read it to you. Is that all right? Okay. Well, God bless you. Thank you for your attention. You're good people. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you don't keep any secrets from us. Your word is there for all to see how cruel it would be if you only told some the truth. We pray that we'd be better evangelists, beginning with myself. Help us to not fight you in the things that matter most. Help us to spend time with you and then in turn, spending time with you. Don't let it turn us into self-righteous people who are adding up our hours with you and then comparing them with others. Help us just to be humble before you and let our time with you change us for the good. And thank you that in all of that, because of Jesus, our standing is perfect. The distance between you and us is is none because of Jesus. Our best day, our worst day, we're still the same before you because of Christ. That's the good news. That's the good news. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all who believe both today and evermore. Amen.